The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, EDU edition for this week. Um, We are launching a, uh, I guess the quarterly now, series on... Uh, dialogue, or we'll call it the quarterly dialogue series, something along those lines. This is fairly new, so we don't have an official title for it. But we promised last time that uh, uh, because it was very popular, we would do another show or a few shows uh, where we brought in kind of, I don't know if it's called, we'd call them suggestions, but rather uh, descriptions from our listening audience about how they're dealing with a particular aspect of their retirement planning. Because We've got a whole lot of do-it-yourselfers out there that listen to the show, and we uh, this past uh, summer, early fall, did a a uh, series where we gathered information about how uh, listeners were were dealing with a certain aspect of their retirement planning, um, and uh, we promised people we'd start doing that regularly, um, maybe once a quarter. And now we're in the fourth quarter. We're going to do that now, and we're going to. Uh, 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 we've elicited some feedback from folks about how they're dealing with inflation, inflationary fears, inflationary realities in their retirement situation. And so we're going to bring to you um, some of that, share with you what some other people that are out there in listener land are doing with regard to dealing with that with inflation. And uh, we will, you know, provide our, our uh, commentary alongside that uh, as we as we read through these. So Jim's got them all lined up is my understanding. And I don't know exactly how many people have responded to this particular call out, but the, the number of those that he decides to go through will determine how many shows it takes for us to get through this. So it'll probably at least take a couple, if not three, which will, which will bring us through the end of the year here, or the end of 2023, since we're recording this here in, it's almost mid December. It's we're recording this on the 12th. So Jim, um, Remind me again, what was the dialogue series last time? Was it on um, minimum dignity floor? Coverage yeah, we or? had we had 
started to do another discussion on minimum dignity floor. We were getting a lot of feedback because yeah. I encouraged it. And I said, hey, uh, why don't you all share with me what you guys are doing? Remember, mm-hmm. it was about our approach to retirement planning, not just minimum dignity floor. And how are you handling your approach? So what are you doing? You're doing the safe withdrawal rate. You're doing Oz. You're doing something else. What do you like about Oz? What don't you like about it? And we had that one gentleman uh, write to us about a few things he didn't like about our approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what got the concept of the dialogue series going in my head. And uh, I thought, gee, maybe we should make this a quarterly thing. I think twice a year isn't enough. Uh, every month would be too much. So I thought quarterly, We'll dedicate a couple of shows to dialogue between us and you, the listener. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, you can write in and, and tell us if you don't like us, especially if you don't like Chris. You can write and tell him that. That's okay. Um, and you can attack our approach if you'd like, or you can write in and support us, especially if you're like me. You can write in, explain all that. But that was our intent was to try to get some dialogue going. And we did get some dialogue on our inflation series that we did. We did a little bit of how we address inflation uh, in our retirement planning process. And we got two people writing in about their thoughts of inflation, not necessarily how they deal with it, but their thoughts of inflation. So I thought we would uh, start the dialogue series today with the inflation. And then we'll probably continue for the next two uh, shows And I've got a ton of dialogue uh, feedback from our original call-out, if you will, uh, about two months ago, three months ago now, Chris, when we started this concept of the dialogue series. In a perfect world, and and here we'll we'll ask Chris live on recorded radio Mm -hmm. if he's had any luck in coming up with a thought yet or idea yet, because where I really want this dialogue concept to go is live dialogue. Uh, We can't do this constantly because Chris's schedule and my schedule are way, way too convoluted. But I thought once a quarter, we could probably commit to being available a certain time on Tuesday. We seem to record constantly on Tuesdays. The EDU show seems to always be recorded on a Tuesday. So any luck, Chris, in somehow doing something where people would be able to call in and the dialogue would actually be live. It it would be recorded by time it plays, but we would allow people as we're recording the podcast to listen. And if they want, call in while we're recording the dialogue series and give us live dialogue. I thought about it a little bit, and I'm thinking that we might want to do it through – maybe a Zoom meeting or something along those lines instead of when you say call in, maybe not call in via uh, telephone because then someone's the, – the well, I'm not going to go into the technical issues. There's It has its own challenges being able to manage that where I think it might work better if we're kind of people enter in as a – as a team meeting, almost like a you know really big company that has a whole bunch of people in the same meeting and then uh, people can uh, – uh, contribute via you know chat amongst themselves written form and then raise their hand and and we can call on people essentially so i oh, think that might be pro- the way that works best for this so we'll we'll talk a little more about it and maybe head that direction 
Yeah, we, we won't do this series again. It, it pretty much will play at the end of the quarter. So if we do this quarterly, I'm thinking somewhere around March, uh, we may do this series again. And maybe by then Chris will have worked out the, the uh, kinks, if you will, to allow some sort of live dialogue. We're never going to be able to go back to the way we used to do our Q&A show occasionally with live callers. And um, we used, I don't even know what program we used. And it worked for a while, but... We, we couldn't pin our schedule down that uh, strictly that once a week we'd always be available at a certain time. But I like your idea, Chris, of some type of Zoom. I don't know how people are going to get into it, but some type of Zoom type thing, that might work. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you piqued my interest if we can make this work. <laughs> okay. All righty. So let's get this again. It's going to be dialogue. People sharing with us some of what they do with social security, excuse me, with social security, with uh, inflation. And I'm not sure which one to lead with. I'll lead with this one here. There's two that I definitely want to get to. And one person just wanted to kind of share his thoughts. He titled it Inflation Dialogue. And he makes a couple of good points. But let's chat a little bit. This whole idea, let's read what he has to say, Chris, and you and I just kind of chat with him as if he were on this live Zoom call. So it says, hi, Jim and Chris. As it relates to Social Security, I consider Social Security a, quote unquote, handicapped source of retirement income. Let me explain. I've watched the purchasing power of my mother's Social Security decline materially over the past 10 to 15 years. The CPI is not an accurate measure of end-user consumer inflation. For one prominent example, the measure of housing costs in nearly every government-issued inflation statistic has completely mistracked the actual cost of housing. Sadly, almost always to the downside. Also, the obligations of the U.S. government to pay Social Security is actually subject to political revision. A Supreme Court decision in the 1960s adjudicated this issue, yet it gets very little attention. Let's pause there. I don't want to read his whole email. It gets long. So let's give a little dialogue here. I'm very intrigued by the first paragraph. The second paragraph, I will admit I did not know the Supreme Court adjudicated the fact that the uh, obligation of the U.S. government to pay Social Security is, I guess, up for debate, for lack of a better terminology. I always knew anything created by Congress is never fixed or guaranteed, because a future Congress can change it. We see that constantly in the tax code. And I think most people recognize Social Security was created by the government. Government giveth, government can taketh away. We've all heard that. So I'm not quite sure what happened in the 1960s and what the case was. Maybe Chris does. He he knows Social Security better than I do. But it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that anything created by the government can be played with and changed later. Anything you want to add to that before we get to his 
first point, which I think was was more significant. But anything you want to add to this 1960s case? And have you heard of this 1960s case? Off the top of my head, I don't recall the details of of the 1960s case he's referring to. So um, I'll refresh my memory on that and see if it's something I can chime in about. Okay. A little bit of Google searching, not necessarily on this uh, today. Yeah, but I, th- if you have I think a, if a I remember correctly, one. it was essentially there's no – um, legally binding contractual uh, obligation um, to a social security benefit recipient to receive those benefits. So, which I, I don't know why that was necessarily up for debate because it's a, it's a governmental program run by the government and they created it and they're free to adjust it. Our lawmakers that we elect are free to adjust it or potentially eliminate it at some point. So, um, I mean, do I think that's likely the elimination part? Not in the foreseeable future by any means in my personal opinion, but that, uh, that I think, I think that was the essence of the case. Someone was trying to argue that there's a contract involved that they cannot break. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I, I, I haven't heard but I'll, of that. I'll look, but... at it. I'll look at it again, see if there's some other nuance to it. But if I, if I remember correctly, that's all it really was. But, folks, this listener's first point is so true. And it's one thing we have talked about in the past, maybe not weekly on the podcast, but longtime listeners know we have often said CPI is a poor measure, especially of minimum dignity floor items. It's nice that minimum dignity floor, excuse me, it's nice that Social Security gets a cost of living adjustment. I know on the recent series we did on inflation, when we started talking about tips specifically, I did point out that the inflationary increase of tips, if being applied, if your reserve of tips is to cover minimum dignity floor, you're likely not going to keep pace with minimum dignity floor. Because MDF expenses, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, all of them individually and all of them in combination, generally go up at rates of inflation significantly higher than general CPI or headline inflation. And that's one of the reasons we attack inflation the way we do at our firm. We kind of build in three different layers of protection, if you will, from inflation. We don't have one set approach. We we do have one set approach, but it includes three different things the firm does all in an effort to try to protect from inflation. But it should come as a surprise to no one that CPI is not an accurate reflection of true inflation. I don't think it should. This gentleman saw his mother's spending drop every year for the last 10 to 15 years, he said. That, again, shouldn't come as a surprise. In fact, there is um, CPI-R for retirees where the federal government is creating just off to the side. I don't know how many years ago they created CPI-R. They've acknowledged that retired people, elderly people, 
have higher inflationary pressures than what general CPI captures. If memory serves me correct, medical is only 6% of general CPI. But for retirees, it's a significantly greater portion of their expenses. Just to give one small example of why CPI is a lousy measure of retiree inflationary pressures. But when you use Social Security the way Chris and I do, when we try to earmark it specifically to address minimum dignity floor, and when you believe, if you believe, like Chris and I believe, that the younger you, even if the younger you is 62, 63, 64, and just retiring, you are still young compared to a 74 or 84-year-old. The younger you has to give, in our opinion, an explicit promise to the older you that the minimum dignity floor is going to be protected with lifetime income. So if you're going to believe in that concept, that approach, you have to acknowledge the weaknesses of the lifetime income that's available to us. Social Security, pensions, and income annuities. All of them have weaknesses. And you're going to have to adjust your approach, your inflationary approach, to funding your minimum dignity floor, acknowledging those weaknesses. And one of the first weaknesses you need to acknowledge, headline inflation is not accurately tracking food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. They have those components in them, but they often don't represent yours or retirees as a whole minimum dignity floor inflationary pressures. So you need to come up with other strategies. Anything you want to add, Chris, I'm sure there is, on that first paragraph where he's pointing out. And I think that's what he means. He considers Social Security to be handicapped. It's held back. And he's right. It's handicapped if you're comparing it or using it to fund minimum dignity floor. It's probably not handicapped if you were using Social Security, say, to fund a fixed expense Uh, Recently, and I'm not sure who, I I get hit with all sorts of information, but someone is turning Social Security on early. I don't know if this was an email or, or a client case an employee just recently told me about, but turning Social Security on early, 62 or 63, I believe, to use the premiums of it to fund uh, insurance premiums on long-term care or something like that. So when Social Security is being earmarked to an expense that is fixed or immune from inflationary pressures, and LTC insurance is a bad example. I don't think it was LTC. I think it was um, to fund uh, premiums to pay uh, life insurance for a guaranteed inheritance or something like that. Something that was geared more, folks, towards a fixed, constant expense. I don't think Social Security in that realm is handicapped at all because I don't think they're ever going to cut Social Security. I, I know there's a threat of that, but I don't feel it's a strong threat, at least right now. And Social Security would be wonderful for a fixed expense. But when it's being tasked to cover expenses that are going up greater, then headline inflation, 
and it's just general CPI headline inflation that Social Security is being increased by, you should go into your retirement knowing Social Security is handicapped. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I think there's, you know, from a common sense standpoint, the experimental CPIE for the CPI for elderly adjusts the consumption basket that is used to make the calculations. And it would seem from a common sense standpoint that that basket would uh, be better as far as Social Security keeping up with true um, expenses of the elderly. The statistic, they haven't embraced that yet. Social Security still uses CPIW, which I believe actually excludes retired folks from from its uh, uh, data sources, which seems very odd. But um, the uh, studies I've seen, the CPIE versus CPIW from year to year can vary a little bit. But when uh, you look at it over a longer period of time, there's actually a surprisingly little difference between them. Um, it all kind of averages out. So I think moving forward, and, and maybe you know some of that data might be a little old. I think where people get into trouble is more recently, one of the key or one of the largest components of the minimum dignity floor for um, retirees being medical, medical has faced really strong upward pressures and the elderly are much heavier users of medical than the average, you know, worker is. So there's, I think the, the greater the healthcare component of the minimum dignity floor or the elderly's consumption basket from, from the CPI standpoint becomes the, the, the more pressure there is on that piece, I think we're going to start to see more and more difference between the CPIE type measures and the CPIW, which they currently use. So it's while historically, I think they've tracked surprisingly close together um, on average, not from year to year, there can be differences, but on average over a longer period of time, um, I think moving forward, most people are going to wish that Social Security was tied to a more retiree slash elderly basket for inflationary pressures or for inflationary measures uh, than the W that they're using right now. That's just my my feeling about the situation, uh, my opinion. We'll have to see how things roll out. Yeah, all of this is opinion. My opinion, your opinion, every other advisor's opinion out there, and, and our listeners' opinion. Y'all listening to this, you're smart. We, we don't get uneducated people generally listening to this podcast. It's not the most exciting podcast in the world uh, and topic in the world to listen to. There's far more exciting people than Chris Stein and Jim Solney, I'll tell you that much. So people who generally are listening to this, you all are smart. I'm sure you understand a lot of this and you're addressing it in your own way. So let's look at how this listener, after setting the stage, addresses inflation himself. And I agree with some of what he's doing. And even the extreme approach that he's taking in a round, very, very, very roundabout way, we do something similar. And I'll explain. Okay, he says this, Chris. Our approach for dealing with inflation, and our ages are 62 and 61, is to completely eliminate Social Security from any retirement projection. We then use a combination of tips, ETFs, and equity indexed funds 
to address inflation as best we can. He doesn't get in, folks, in explaining how he uses the tips, if it's a a ladder or a specific spending reserve for the future, doesn't mention the ETFs. And I believe when he says equity indexed funds, he might be talking about equity indexed annuities, or it could be the buffered products that uh, we spoke about. So I don't know what he means by equity indexed funds. And listener, you don't have to write back and clear the air unless you want to during our dialogue series. That's up to you. But what he proposed at first part of his sentence, I have actually seen other advisors do. And I have read in advisor forums And I have read articles in the magazines, and and there's no magazines anymore. Everything's online. And the the online uh, sites that I follow geared specifically towards professionals in my industry and not the consumers anymore of totally eliminating Social Security from any calculations. At its core, folks, all what that does is removes a source of secure income and forces you to use more of your dollars to make up for that shortage. It's very similar to what we do in the practice here, where we will inflate our uh, needs greater than the statistical average of 3%. We inflate minimum dignity floor uh, at higher rates, generally between 4 and 6%. So it forces more money to be put aside if we're inflating these expenses higher than we think they're going to be needed. We underestimate, in our opinion, the COLA on Social Security. Chris uses two, even though it historically will be higher. It forces, with a smaller increase to Social Security, it forces you to put more of a reserve aside. I don't think we've ever purposefully, and I'll let Chris opine on this, he does all the programming, him and his team and the delivery, and I've been removed from this post-stroke. You all know I don't get deep involved in the client interactions unless you're doing annuities and investments. But on the planning side, I'll let Chris chime in. If anyone has ever asked him to purposefully underestimate the secure income they're going to receive, that's essentially what you're doing, listener. You're underestimating your secure income, forcing you to take more of your assets and driving them into savings or earmarking them specifically for expenses. So I I have seen this strategy before where advisors say all the time that they regularly exclude Social Security. We don't regularly exclude it unless we're specifically asked to exclude something. But we do purposefully underestimate the potential COLA increases to Social Security And I don't want to say overestimate the inflationary pressures on minimum dignity floor. I think we more accurately uh, estimate minimum dignity floor expense inflation, and we avoid falling into the trap of using average inflation, especially average inflation over the past 30, 40 years. So what are your thoughts on, and again, I like his approach. I'm not saying it's right or wrong in a roundabout way we do it. I admire it. It's If anything, it's going to give you more money. 
And I'd rather be in that situation where if you got more savings and more income than you ever thought you needed uh, when you get 20 years from now when you're 82 and 81. So what do you think of his idea that, hey, I'm going to address inflation by just not even factoring Social Security in? I think that's a fairly extreme version of stress testing. I certainly have done for, for people who are particularly concerned about the reduction of Social Security modeled in a you know 20 25% reduction in the benefit at some point in the future uh not very common because most of the people we work with are either on the cusp of retiring or or they can see it uh coming around the bend they're fairly close so that puts them at an age of 58 and older and i think uh based on the history of congress and its relationship with social security I still think it's reasonable to assume that they are going to, uh, for the most part, protect people who are already claiming or really close to claiming age. And of course, claiming age is 62 years old. Whether you claim it or not is kind of irrelevant. The fact that you can claim it at 62 kind of puts the onus on Congress not to pull the rug out from somebody right at you know right before they're going to claim. They've made all these plans, these relying on this while even though the 1960 case uh, uh, Supreme Court said that's not a contractual obligation I still think it's reasonable uh, to to assume you're going to get Social Security if you are a 60 year old or a 58 year old um, but if you're particularly worried about future inaction by Congress which could lead to a reduction in Social Security benefits because that's you know the headline news doesn't I think tell the whole story, but in essence, the the worry, the the fear that is put out there is that if Congress doesn't make any changes whatsoever, you'd have to assume there's no changes made. That sometime in the early 2030s, or about 10 years out from this point, the cushion or trust fund that was built up and to prepare for baby boomers to retire, that was built up within the Social Security system. They've been running a a surplus for many, many years, building up a surplus, building up a cushion. That cushion's started to be drained down um, slowly at first, started a couple years ago. Uh, The drain down will accelerate to the point where that cushion might be gone by 2032, 2033, somewhere in there. And Social Security, by law, cannot pay out more money than they have. They cannot run a deficit. So if there aren't fixes implemented proactively, Social Security would find itself in a position of only being able to pay out about, you know, 78 to 80 percent of their promised benefits. And so you would see a cut um, at that point. And if you are really worried about or would like to see through a stress test, which is what I would call it, a version of your retirement plan projection where there is this 20, 22, maybe 25% cut in Social Security 10 years from now. Uh, I, you know, I model that in for people. So I think it's worthy of looking at um, what that will lead to is essentially, unless you have an overabundance of Social Security where we look at it and say, well, gee, even with a 20% cut, you've still got a lot compared to your actual minimum dignity floor expenses. Maybe you're still in good shape. Most people wouldn't be. That drastic of a drop would put them in jeopardy of covering the minimum dignity floor, which is what we like to see Social Security do primarily. You know, at first, we want to see the secure income covering that minimum dignity floor. If it can't cover anything beyond that, at least do that. And um, a 20% cut will likely lead to uh, a gap down the road, which then 
the conclusion is you're going to need to set aside money to make up the difference. Now, he's doing an extreme version of that, which is let's not assume a 20% cut. Let's assume 100% cut. It's just not there. How are we going to deal with these expenses that we need to cover? And uh, they have inflationary pressures. So we need something that uh, does well in that regard. The the challenge always in, in the in the world of how do I grow my money for any purpose, whether it's to cover inflation or anything else, a lot of the ways to grow your money involve risk. And uh, that risk then opens you up to uh, variability in your retirement plan that has to be addressed and prepared for. And so it makes it you know, much more complicated to deal with. And that's why, you know, we really like having the simplicity of secure income covering the foundation or minimum dignity floor of your plan because uh, we want to at least eliminate that complexity and that risk of dealing with uncertainty and risk. Well, investment risk, I'll say specifically, because there's lots of risks in retirement, but investment risk specifically, let's insulate your minimum dignity floor from that uh, itself that can get us, um, you know, one step towards risk mitigation in all the risks we're facing in uh, retirement. Um, so, you know, he's just choosing to do a extreme version of that stress test. And, um, you know, the another way to look at it, I guess they could, it's, I just, this came to me, maybe you could flip this upside down and use social security for your discretionary spending essentially say let's let's instead of using that for the core let's deal with the core separately and then social security because we're worried about it going down or fluctuating or not keeping up let's dedicate that to covering our discretionary expenses uh, which are by definition discretionary if we need to cut them because things don't go so well or congress doesn't get their act together and there's a 20% cut we'll you know we can absorb that in our fund budget or in our discretionary budget that would be the a mirror opposite approach of what we use, but throw, you know, maybe somebody out there want to do it that way. Right. And it would tie into what I was saying earlier, because I was thinking the same thing. Um, discretionary spending generally goes up lower than headline inflation. Uh, clothing, for instance, which it for us is not part of minimum dignity floor. I've seen other advisors uh, use clothing. I don't know why, but they use clothing as part of uh, essential expenses. Now, I'm not saying you're going to walk around naked. That's not what I'm getting at, folks. But uh, I don't have to buy clothes. I've got enough clothes probably to get me through another decade or so before I would actually have to replace things, underwear notwithstanding. But what I'm getting at is clothing tends to go up very, very low, sometimes has negative inflation. You pay less sometimes for clothing. So tying Social Security to expenses uh, whose inflationary pressures are generally lower than headline inflation uh, helps remove the handicap that he spoke about of Social Security. Anyways, he continues, folks, uh, as he wraps up. He just wanted to share his thoughts. He said, I have researched inflation, and the inflation of the mid-70s through the early 80s indicated Agricultural real estate and not stocks was the best inflation hedge. I don't know if that's right or wrong, folks, but that's his research um, has indicated that agricultural real estate is better. Of course, every era's high inflation can differ in its causes and persistence. Nevertheless, I would approach this by estimating future inflation will be 
in the 5 to 6% range. We have simply too much federal debt. So he's again, folks, saying that I'm assuming he's estimating a 5 to 6% inflationary rate, not the more 2 to 3. You know, the Fed wants a 2 uh, percent inflation rate. He's not falling victim or biting uh, at the, the, the bait that the Fed is laying out there and said, oh, I'm going to put 2 or even 3% inflationary pressures. He's using 5 to 6, which again made me shake my head in agreement in the sense we increase minimum dignity floor expenses, 4 on the low side, 6 plus on the high side. Now, let's, you said that twice now, so I need to correct it. Those oh. rates are only for health care. Okay. That's always always been. That's not new. That's you're thinking of healthcare, not the whole minimum dignity floor. Okay. Minimum dignity floor has quite a bit of things that are at three. Uh, groceries or food, we do it four. Uh, healthcare expenses are four to six, six and a half, depending on these are you know regionally calculated based on data that we have for regional healthcare expenses over the past fifteen twenty years or so. So what do the, we inflate transportation at? Three, for the most part, three. There's when you say transportation, there's a lot of individual elements within there, but it's uh, baseline three for transportation. Okay. Again, folks, I don't do the programming. Chris does. Um, personally, I'd like to see inflation, uh, transportation, a little higher. Maybe we'll chat about that at a next team meeting. But I would like to see transportation estimated a little bit higher than that. Uh, as we move more and more to uh, green energy, which is non-stoppable, it's also significantly more expensive than uh, fossil fuels. And I'm not quite sure we're actively uh, projecting a, a reasonable inflationary rate on. Yeah, and on that's the one one little part that is um, can be. But there's a lot in transportation that's not the fuel. Correct, but at least the fuel part. Um, we could get it. Anyways, we don't have to talk about it here. But what Chris and I are doing here, folks, this is discussions we have all the time on our team meetings. We take nothing for granted, and you shouldn't either. You need to always be looking at your assumptions and the way you do things. Staff knows, and I've shared this on the podcast, I never want to hear ever, well, that's the way we've always done it. Oh, that's the surest way to get on my bad list. I don't like hearing that. I don't care if it's the way we've always done it. Life changes, and you have to roll with the changes or roll with the punches or whatever that saying is. So as you adjust your inflation and you start looking at these things, roll with the changes. Don't fall into complacency and just think, okay, everything will be fine. I just read this article and inflation has averaged 3% for the last 80 years. I've been making this up, but you, you see things like that and you just assume, well, if it's always been like this in the past, then it's always going to be like this into the future. And one of the first things anyone invests know, they hear past performance is no guarantee of future results. Well, past life is no guarantee of future life. So always be willing to revisit what you've done and never say, oh, I did it wrong. No, at the time you based it on the information you knew and you made what you felt was a right decision at the time. But times change, so decisions must change. 
and projections and what you do with those projections must change. And we as a firm need to do that. Maybe we need to do it more often and look at our own measures and how we do things and agree as a team if we feel they're accurate, should they be raised, should they be cut, should they stay the same. We do this constantly on the investment portfolios and retirement planning uh, should or financial planning in general should also be subject to the same constant examination. So you guys need to, to do that as do it yourselfers and look at all of this. And again, for him to estimate high inflation, again, it's a stress test that forces him to save more. And I have nothing against his approach of what he's doing. And I agree with him. We do have a lot of debt in this country, an outrageous, insane amount, absolute, positively, totally insane amount that will never be paid back. And if you look at history, governments get out of insane debt by inflating themselves out of it. Is that what this government's going to do in the future? Who knows? But you can't spend your time worrying about what you don't know. You can address what you do know and constantly adjust any projections that you may make. It's one of the reasons I often tell you do-it-yourselfers. Sooner or later, you're not going to be able to do it yourself. Whether it's planning or investing, you're eventually going to need someone to help you, especially as you age and maybe a spouse passes away, the more involved spouse passes away. And you expect the less involved spouse to be able to deal with all this? Or as you just age and you lose interest in it, you lose the ability to process mental data the way you used to, and eventually you're going to have to hand the baton off to someone or some firm or some family member who's going to be able to pick it up for you and continue. Don't lose sight of that. I know that that sparks a lot of support emails and a lot of consternation emails from people when I mention as you age, your ability to understand financial concepts will decline. But it's true. Like it or not, it is true. And studies have shown age 50. Gosh, I can't even remember. See, I'm getting old, folks. Is it 52 or 53, the Harvard study? I think it was 53. I think it's 53. That after that age, the part of our brain that understands financial concepts is actually in a state of decline. It's not a cliff. If it was a cliff, both Chris and I would be dumb as a brick right now because we're over 52 or 53. I can't even remember what the actual age is now. But what we're simply trying to share is we acknowledge and we understand, especially me with my own life. I do this for a living. This is my life. I, I live for this. <clears throat> but I know I have to eventually walk away, maybe not totally, but the firm cannot rely, I think, in the future on a 70, 75-year-old man to be making the, the quick decisions that will need to be made and to stay sharp and up to date on changes in retirement planning and projections and all the other elements that I have to pull together while running this firm. I know I'm going to have to pass it off. And sooner or later, you will have to pass it off. Trust me on that. Okay. Anything else you want to add before I get to the next gentleman's email of what he does for inflation? 
No, I'm ready for the second one. Okay. All right. Oh, the guy did George, this past George, he did want me to ask you his little hint at the end. So he lives in the state who is home to the mountains to the sea hiking trail. I never heard of this. I heard of the state, but I never heard of this trail. Mountains to the sea hiking trail. Hmm. I vaguely ring a bell, but I'm not sure I'm, I would just be guessing as to. Well, take what, a guess. Uh, That's what this whole thing is about. A guess. guess. <laughs> you got about, a one out of 50 uh, chance. Uh, Hawaii. North Carolina. Oh, I couldn't have probably been any further <laughs> off than that. Don. I wouldn't have picked that either. <laughs> this next question. Hint. Interesting. We got this twice now. Um, never asked it yet. Think this through. He says, Jim and Chris and awesome team. My dialogue topic for the podcast. But first, my hint. It's not necessarily the state I live in, but it is a fun state question just the same. So he doesn't live in the state, I'm guessing, but he wanted us to, uh, he's, he's, he's copied another state's hint this state is the most easternmost of all the states um, there's got to be a trick to this <laughs> the easternmost. I'll say Maine. No, I got this one only because I'm a history buff. Alaska. The Aleutian Islands. Oh, we're on the other side of the date line? Yep. Mm. Yep. Crossed the 180-degree line. And I knew that because Japan invaded the Aleutian Islands uh, in World War II. And there was quite a bloody battle to win them back that a lot of people don't know that uh, Japan was there. Um, so anyways, uh, Alaska, Crazy. we got this question twice. So wow. anyways, interesting little question. That is there. an interesting one. I'll never forget that one now. <laughs> okay. He begins. I'm your classic do it yourself, Vanguard engineer, VG listener. When initially planning my retirement income plan, I researched a number of complex approaches after much education from reading Wade Fowle and listening to your podcast. I completely revised my plan. I have adopted your KISS approach. Keep it super simple. I do it this way to avoid calling anyone stupid. I like mm, that. Keep yeah. it super simple. Yeah, I like it. It's, yeah, I like that one better instead of keep it simple, stupid. But I do have my own twist. And here's his twist. So this is what he does, folks. A little twist. Um, oh, wait a minute. I apologize. Goodness, this is live recorded radio. Um, I'm going to stop here. This is not the inflation one. This is the one that I was going to do. <laughs> You're so excited to do that hint. I did. That's... I wanted that hint. Okay. We can jump right. to the other one. <laughs> We're going to jump to the inflation one. I apologize to that listener. He's like, oh, good. My podcast question, uh, dialogue. We will lead next week with the rest. So that's as a teaser to be continued. So. 
Uh, his email will be continued. This is the email I wanted to get to, but I did like his question. Um, okay. This one you'll get. I, I have faith in you on this hint. He is from the state, Chris, that is home to the oldest continuous elected legislature in the new world. If you are a history buff, you will get this one, especially U.S. history buff. Don't think long. You either know it or you don't. Virginia? What'd you say? Virginia. Virginia. Yes, you got it. Excellent. All right. This is the inflation one, folks. I will get to the other one next week. I promise. Everyone's going to be on, um, what do you call it? Pins and needles. Is that what you call it? So they're yes. going to be on pins and needles waiting for next week. I am responding to your recent EDU podcast in which you discussed tips, tips, ladders, and inflation. You asked to hear from listeners and to receive feedback about what they do. Here are some of the things I incorporated into my retirement plan and into my ongoing tips ladder that I designed and plans, which I have never discussed in detail with anyone. So here we are, hmm. folks. He's going to share it with all of us. One, or first, many experts agree that tips are preferably located in a tax-deferred account, such as an IRA, to avoid the phantom income taxation that you will receive in a taxable account. Uh, real quickly, listeners, if you don't quite understand this with tips, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, they are a special bond issued by the U.S. government. They pay significantly less interest than a traditional bond. But what the federal government will do is every six months, they will increase the principal balance, otherwise known as par value, of the bond by the previous six months rate of inflation. So the theory being when you receive your money back, which a traditional bond gives you interest, because a bond is just a loan, folks. It's a loan to a government or it's a loan to a business. When you receive your loaned money back in a traditional bond, you just receive back what you originally put in. And if you bought the bond 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you just receive your dollars 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. So those dollars you receive will have suffered due to inflation. Now, the theory is in a traditional bond, you received interest, and hopefully that interest payment helped keep pace with inflation. But there's no guarantee. So the government created tips and went a step further. They said, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you less interest payments while you hold the bond, but we will increase your par value by the rate of inflation every six months. But you don't get it until your bond matures. That's why they call it phantom income. You don't get it until the bond matures. But the government being the government, they hate to wait for their tax money. So they're going to tax your phantom income as income, even though you don't get it until the bond matures when they will pay you your par back and the inflation adjustments. So a lot of people say, and it's rightly so, hold tips inside an IRA 
because you won't have to pay taxes every year on phantom income that you never received and won't receive until the tips matures. So that's what he's getting at. So he said, but nowhere have I read a a take that goes further and to say that tips should be located in Roth IRAs where there is no taxation of phantom income or uh, interest payments and no tax liability when you withdraw the money. I don't know if no one has ever written about that. I think most people earmark Roths, I think erroneously earmark Roths as being the last asset you are ever going to debit in retirement and therefore should be the most aggressive investments. I, too, used to subscribe to that, but I have changed my thinking. Remember, just because it's the way I always did it doesn't mean it's the way I always think of it anymore. And I've softened on that since we started adopting tax planning deeply at this firm uh, many years ago now, I think five, six, seven years ago now. But we soon became apparent to me under tax planning, there can be times early in retirement you want to step start debiting from a Roth to keep from going into an IRMA bracket or to qualify for ACA premium tax credits or for any number of reasons where you might not want growth assets in a Roth. You actually want cash or cash-like assets in a Roth. I personally have my deferred income annuity inside a Roth. I have shared that with everyone. I have an annuity. It's going to pay me income. It's a variable annuity. It's one of those god-awful variable annuities you always hear about. But it had an income benefit years ago. You can't get this annuity anymore that I just thought was insane. And I liked it. And I bought it for this living income benefit. But I put it specifically inside my Roth. So when I turn the income on, it comes out tax-free. So what you're talking about, listener, may not be mentioned often, but I don't think it's a novel approach. It's just an approach that a lot of people don't think of. You're saying, hey, I want my tips payments to be tax free because he continues, folks. He says, I am a dedicated Roth converter. Been doing it since 2010. My wife and I are fortunate and we have more than a million dollars in Roth accounts. And we are dedicating a portion of that million to our tips ladder. So that's, again, one way to battle inflation. In the sense, folks, money he takes out of the Roth with his tips won't be reduced for inflation. It's going to give him more after-tax dollars or more protection from rampant inflation. It's going to give him more dollars. Removing taxes is kind of a way of helping to battle inflation. You don't have to worry about rising taxes or the quote-unquote inflationary pressures on future tax rates. So Roths can be a wonderful thing. Anything on that first part of his strategy, Chris, put the tips in a Roth. No, I think the what bucket you keep it in is really about your tax situation, and I don't think people should stick um, you know, to the mantra of Roth should only be for long-term investments. There's every reason in the world, once you get later in life, 
not everything is about the long term. Sometimes it's about managing your current situation and it can make perfect sense to have not growth, growth targeted or growth goal assets inside your Roth when the tax situation, you know, makes sense otherwise. So I think that is something that people are stuck in their head because young in life, there was, that was, that was preached to them, which made a lot of sense over the long haul, having money in there, getting it in at low tax rates, and then having all that growth be tax free. I'll think of all the advantages of that over the long haul sounds great. But once you get there and you're actually contemplating making distributions and managing your retirement situation, you're not feeding your retirement accounts anymore. I think you need to have a look at it a little more broadly. Okay. He continues, as you have noted on the podcast in the past, market values of long maturity tips are very sensitive to interest rates. I'll pause there for any new listener who doesn't know what he said right there. Bonds move inverse to interest rates. If interest rates go up, the price of bonds drop. If interest rates go down, the price of bonds goes up. It's beyond the scope on this podcast right now, today, on this show, to get into why that is. It's just, trust me, the way bonds work. And the longer time to maturity, the more of that effect is happening. Correct. So if you have a bond that matures next year, remember, when it matures, it pays you back your par value, the money you put in. Now, if it's a tip, it'll pay you back par value and the inflation adjustment. If you have a bond that matures next year, it's not going to be that susceptible to rising interest rates. It's not going to move much. Your money's coming back next year. But if you take 20 years before you get the money back, that tip, that bond or tip is going to, from a price change standpoint, be all over the place, going down. It's called mark to market. The government says that bonds must be marked to market on your brokerage account. They can't list what you're going to get for them when they mature. They have to list what you would get for them that day, or at least the day that the statement was created, if it's a paper statement, or that day you log in, if you're doing it live online, what that bond is worth at that time. And it's always been this way, even in accounting, except in 08, when the stock market crashed. The accounting world got rid of mark to market. The government graced this for banks to get rid of mark to market because if they actually had a mark to market the bonds on their books, a lot of banks would have went under. Problem is they never got rid of that. And people now call it mark to make believe that a bank And we just saw this this year with the banks that were going under. A couple of them went under this year, if you forgot already. Mark to make believe is when a bank will say, we intend to hold these bonds to maturity. So we are not going to reflect their current value on our balance sheets. We are going to reflect their maturity values. That allows them not to have to mark to market with it going down and allows their balance sheet to make them look a lot stronger. It's bogus. It's BS. It's never been removed. They can still do it. Charles Schwab did it big time uh, this year. And it just makes them look better than they are because they're saying we're going to hold these forever. 
So that's called mock to make believe. But mock to market is what you're going to see on your statements. And that's the volatility this gentleman is talking about. Listen to what he does with this. So he continues, I buy long-term tips and I will buy them in my traditional IRAs. And I establish tentative. So he's saying he might do this, he might not. But I establish tentative plans to convert them in kind to a Roth IRA if their values drop or fall during a rising interest rate environment. In-kind conversions, folks. Talk a little bit about that, Chris. An in-kind conversion. I like what this guy's doing. In English, he's saying, I'm going to put my long-term tips in my Roth. I'm assuming his shorter-term tips might be in his brokerage account or his IRA. No, you said he just said the long term in his traditional IRA. Oh, excuse me, in his traditional IRA. Yes, thank you for correcting me on that. And he's putting the long term ones in his traditional IRA on purpose. He knows the prices of them because they have to be marked to market. We don't go by mark to make believe, and that helps him in this situation. By saying mark to market, even though he knows he's going to hold them, in a rising interest rate environment, those tips, because they're long, long-term tips, they're not going to mature for, I'm guessing, 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to drop a lot in value because of mark to market. Then he's going to convert it in kind, or in other words, tell his custodian, he said he's with Vanguard, so I assume he would tell Vanguard, Move the entire tip. Don't sell it. Move the entire tip. I want the tip. I don't want to get rid of it. I'm going to sell it when it matures. I'm not even going to sell it. I'm going to wait for it to mature and pay me my money. But because this is marked to market and not marked to make believe, this tip is worth less today. Move this tip now into my raw. And here's what he says. This action transfers essentially my guaranteed future growth to an untaxed Roth. I think of it as buying an IRA, accumulate it in the Roth. What he's saying is he feels confident, folks, the U.S. government is not going to go bankrupt. Don't try this with junk bonds issued from some near bankrupt company. He's saying this is the U.S. government. I buy long-dated tips, which are very price-sensitive to rising interest rates. And I'm going to try to take advantage of rising rates. I'm assuming he had one hell of a great time in 2022 and 2023 with this strategy. Because of mark-to-market, Tips lost a lot, long-term tips, as well as most long-term bonds. We're talking double digits, folks. In some instances, 20, 30% drop in the value. But he's also saying he believes in the guaranteed future growth. These bonds will mature at par plus inflation. So if he can get a bond that maybe, I'm just going to make these numbers up. 
Let's say he put $100,000 in a 20-year tip. And on paper, mark to market, it's worth 70 today. He knows if he transfers that entire bond, which he had intended to hold anyways as his inflation hedge for 20 years, he puts that into the Roth when that 70000 will recoup to 100 because the government has to pay him at least 100 so that guaranteed growth from 70 to 100 plus all the inflation adjustments he's going to receive come in it's 100% tax free it's no different than when people have an equity that drops precipitously in value and you have faith in that and you can get far greater drops in equities. You can get 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% drop in equities. But if you feel strongly that company's going to come back <coughs> and exceed what you paid, this blow up is just temporary, you can convert in kind, move all those shares into a Roth, and that growth, if it happens, is tax free. He's just simply saying, I feel confident this is guaranteed growth because mark-to-market is just an accounting gimmick if you are going to sell. But I'm like those banks. I'm like Charles Schwab this year who said, don't look at all these bonds that have lost value. We're holding these to maturity. We know these are going to be worth par. Well, he's saying the same thing. I'm holding it. I know it's going to be worth par, but all that growth back to par will be tax-free. I kind of like that approach. Another way of battling inflation. If his tips drop, get him into a Roth, get some tax-free return, gives him more money to help. Any thoughts on that strategy? Yeah, there's a downside to that strategy too. And that downside is you buy it in the, the IRA, things don't drop, uh, or you don't pull the trigger because you don't think it dropped enough. And all that happens is the interest and the um, uh, par value increases due to inflation happen, and now they're all taxable because you bought them in the IRA rather than buying them in the Roth in the first place. So this could end up, you know, not working out. So, well, most people put bonds and tips inside IRAs because the interest is always going to be income taxable to you and the distributions mm -hmm. will always be income taxable to you. But I agree, this does take a degree of um, discipline and regret in the sense your timing might be wrong. You're going to fall victim to human um, biases. Oh, interest rates are going to keep rising. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to convert yet. Or... Like or maybe Chris interest said, rate go the other way. Interest rates go down, go the and other, right. you never end up converting. And now all that that would have been tax free if you had you bought it in the Roth in the first place is now taxable. So there is a, right. you know, you're you're playing a. It's another form of interest rate risk, um, essentially. Yep. And then he sums it up with the new <clears throat> fixed maturity tips ETFs. We spoke briefly about these on a previous show. These are relatively new. I don't want to name the company. I think there's only one company now that has them. I feel fairly confident in a year or two, many companies will have these. These are just an offshoot of fixed maturity or defined outcome exchange traded funds. And the defined outcome exchange traded funds, especially the ones folks tied to bonds, 
Everybody should know that if you own a bond mutual fund or say an indexed bond ETF, there's no defined date where you get your money. The ETF or the mutual fund is just constantly buying and selling bonds that mature at various times. And there's no par date, if you will, that you can get with an individually owned tip that if I just hold it for this much time, I will get my money because it must pay out at par. You don't get that in mutual funds and traditional ETFs. So asset managers have come out with ETFs that have defined maturity dates. And we're talking fixed income ETFs here. And all the bonds that they will own in there will mature in the same year. And they're owned specifically that you, you, they'll trade more like a bond, folks, because everything will mature. You can buy a two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year, six-year, so on and so forth of these. Well, the first one tied to tips came out just a few months ago. And I mentioned this when we were talking about a tips bond ladder because I was hoping – that you can reinvest the interest that you receive to help overcome one of the downsides of a bond ladder. You get all this interest coming out from a bond that cannot be easily reinvested into that bond. And you either have to make it part of your cash flow plans, which makes the calculation real difficult in a bond ladder, we got into that in our bond ladder discussions. I don't want to get into it now. And I simply shared, <coughs> I'm still doing my due diligence on these ETFs, and I need to find out if you reinvest the interest into the ETF, what do they do with it? Are they just putting it in a cash-like account, and it's not no longer being indexed to any inflation? And it's just going to be liquid when that ETF matures. Or are they actually pooling thousands, if not millions, of investors' dollars in these ETFs and buying another tip when the interest payment comes in that maturity matches the targeted maturity of the defined outcome ETF? I don't have an answer to that question yet, folks. I will on Friday. Because we have a discussion with this issuer. Finally, I nailed someone down who talks to advisors because I want to get straight from the horse's mouth what they're doing. So this gentleman writes, I think fixed maturity tips ETFs are a great addition. They have not paid distributions yet, but my Schwab rep indicates the distributions can be reinvested in the ETF. If that is the case, these ETFs have the potential to solve the problems of bond ladders, the reinvestment of interest payments. Mm -hmm. One could either put the whole ladder in ETFs such as these and reinvest the interest payments or invest ongoing interest payments from individual tips you own into these similar maturity ETFs, 
which also reinvest future ETF distributions. What is he saying in English, folks? I like where he's going with this. But before people all get excited, let me talk to this issuer on Friday. And actually, it's going to be Jacob talking. So hopefully Jacob won't screw this up, folks, and he will get answers to what I need. Because a very important compliance call I've been waiting to do was scheduled simultaneously with this very important investment call. And I can't be on both. So Jacob is going to actually talk to the ETF provider. I know you can reinvest into this defined uh, stated maturity, defined outcome, TIPS ETF. And they have 10 rungs to their ladder matures in one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, all the way to 10 years. So we're going to be asking a couple of very specific questions. Will they be adding a new year every year? So every year, a new 10 year one comes out so you can at least make a 10 year ladder. Do they intend to extend that 10 year ladder to 15 or 20 years? It appears you can reinvest interest into the ETF. But that's only one part of the question. What do you do with that reinvested interest? Is it going into tips or you're just putting it in non-tips, some type of money market style account that will be liquid making and paying some interest but not receiving any inflation adjustment? It's a game changer if they say they put it in an ET, excuse me, a tip with a maturity equal to the maturity date of the ETF. Because as this gentleman said, it will finally allow him to do something with that interest that he couldn't do before. It's very hard for small investors who might put $30,000 in a tip and you're getting $6 of interest payments one quarter or, or one six-month period, you get this very small interest payment, run out and buy another tip with that. You can't do it. But you pool yourself with thousands, if not millions of investors. Now this money manager only charges 10 bips for doing this. They can do it. So we will have an answer to that question. Um, I don't know if I'll have it on Friday show, which would be Saturday's Q&A. But we will have that answer. But Chris, did you pick up on his other thought, though? He said, hey, you could buy the ETF and automatically reinvest. But if you kind of like me and you buy the individual ETF, excuse me, the individual tips, you could take your interest pay payments now and purchase one of these ETFs with the interest payment because there is no minimum account size on an ETF. We all know that take the interest payments and buy an ETF whose targeted maturity matches the the tips mm -hmm. you're trying to match just gives you a more efficient way I never way thought to, of it that yeah, way <clears throat> gives you a more efficient way of buying small slices of of tips when you couldn't do it easily with those exactly. you know, interest that's exactly. I really yeah. like mm -hmm. that and I never thought of that folks so kudos to this gentleman saying hey it could work the other way mm -hmm. And I do like that. So all you tips people out there, you might want to start doing your own research. I'm purposefully not naming the company and the product because I can't. We can't identify specific investments. So I'm talking conceptually a defined outcome, ETF, 
tied to bonds, specifically tied to tips. So it's a general investment, but you have to do your own research. I'll tell you what this company tells me, and that and a nickel won't buy you a cup of tea in China. You've got to do your own due diligence. I'm just sharing with you. I am not recommending anyone buy anything that I'm chatting about. But I am intrigued. But I had never thought of using them the way he's describing. And for a lot of you out there, you have tips ladders. He is right. You, It's so easy to buy an ETF. There's no minimum. And you can start to take your tips interest and plow it into a tips ETF whose maturity date matches whatever maturity you're looking for. The downside, the current provider only has 10 rungs on his ladder or their ladder. I'm hoping they're going to add more rungs. And I feel strongly other asset managers will start to offer a very similar product, especially if this company proves to, to um that this strategy is well received and there's strong demand for it. So anyways, that's kind of how he's dealing, not so much with inflation per se, but inflation investing through tips. These are just a couple of his ideas that he uses. Anyways, thank nice. you, listener, for that. Yeah. And that's all I have. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm glad we did this again and look forward to what we learn next week as well. So... Um, thanks a lot, everybody, for sending these in. This obviously only works when we get feedback from our listeners, so we appreciate it. If you want to try to chime in real time while we're doing this series, uh, send an email to Jim directly, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And put in the subject line, make sure it's clear, uh, uh, inflation uh, dialogue, something like that, uh, will catch his attention. Or just dialogue in general if it's mm-hmm. non-inflation. Yeah. And uh, we'll continue on this uh, this path uh, at least for one more show. So Probably two. We'll probably, yeah. we'll probably end the year with it for the okay. next two shows. It's easy. I don't have to do anything. I just read the emails and mm-hmm. we talk about them. Okay. So we'll probably end December with this, and our Q&A show will continue to be the Q&A. But, uh, yeah, we'll just do that. Okay. And then hopefully by next quarter – We'll be doing this live. Maybe. Maybe, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how the first of the year goes. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 